0: Welcome to the Old Way, a deep water initiative podcast series hosted by myself, Chantel Noah-Forbes. This podcast will feature artists, academics, and educators whose work highlights the present ecological significance of Indigenous traditions, customs, and former ways of life. Today, we are joined by Dr. Melinda Miko of the Seminole, Creek, and Choctaw Tribes. Dr. Miko is Associate Professor Emerita of Mills College. Her research has focused on multiracial identity in American Indian and African American communities, primarily in the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma. Dr. Miko is the author of numerous articles and books, as well as a filmmaker and community activist. She is a member of Idle No More San Francisco Bay Solidarity Group that is dedicated to affirming treaty rights for First Nations peoples in Canada and American Indian peoples in the U.S. She is also a signer to the Indigenous Woman of the America's Defending Mother Earth Treaty to honor and protect the planet. Melinda, thank you so much for <laughs> taking the time to speak with me today. Um, Absolutely. Melinda, you're a retired scholar, a filmmaker, an activist, as well as a literal and symbolic grandmother to your and many other communities in both the U.S. and Canada. I'd like to ask if you can start by talking about your journey through all these different roles and how they've informed what it means for you to be a female elder in our times.
1: As we mature and become grandmothers, our roles shift from primary nurturers to those transmitting knowledge to the next generation. So for my role models, I look to my maternal and paternal grandmothers who were extraordinary examples of what and how one should conduct themselves in later years. So in this present climate, it's even more crucial to be a leader and model matriarchy in the best way possible. And to explain that, matriarchy is an example of complementary yet not hierarchical roles, whereby all members of a tribe or a nation work together in a very cohesive manner.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think that often matriarchy is a little bit misunderstood within Western culture, to mean placing dominance onto the feminine role versus uh, the masculine, but you're sort of highlighting here uh, that it's actually about uh, bringing balance uh, to the communal setting.
1: That is, yeah, that's true and just before we talked I was reading a a little article on that and looking at very long, long old traditional ways of matriarchy and Trying for people to understand that that it's not a direct challenge to patriarchy, but it's just reasserting a mother-centred, woman-centred way of negotiating through life. It's it's not um, divisive in any way.
0: So, Melinda, you're a member of Idle No More, a San francisco Bay solidarity group as well as a founding member of the Grandmother's Circle, uh, whose work is not only focused on First Nations rights and community justice, but also the rights and justice of Mother Earth. Firstly, if I may ask, how do you see the rights of First Nations and American Indian peoples and Mother Earth related to one another? And then secondly, if you can just tell us a little bit more about these two organizations and groups and how they came about.
1: Well, I feel it's impossible to assert the rights of First Nation peoples without connecting to Mother Earth. We are stewards of the Earth, not dominant over it, and we work to protect her for the next seven generations and beyond. So the Grandmother Circle began in 2007 where a group of us Indigenous grandmothers came together each month just to pray for the protection of our precious earth, to pray for people in decision-making positions, and to offer prayers for our individual members who were experiencing some troubles. The grandmothers became the core and, if you will, somewhat the governing body of Idle No More SF Bay, and we governed in traditional woman-led consensus making ways. And we continue to be that governing core, if you will, um, because we do, we have accumulated knowledge of the grandmothers. I've been doing activism for more than 30 years. So putting together a group of six grandmothers with all of that knowledge, it's a concentration of what we want to pass on to the next generation.
0: And so if you can tell me a a little more about what Idle No More uh, San Francisco Bay Solidarity Group uh, does and perhaps just share some of the examples of some of the work that you're doing on the ground.
1: On the ground is really, uh, it came about because it's certainly influenced by the Canadian Idle No More More group uh, composed of three First Nations Women and one woman who describes herself as a settler, uh, colonial woman, and that was begun in 2012, and they were reacting to a very disastrous C45 bill that would eliminate protection for 95% of Canada's waterways. We saw that in the Bay Area and were very much in line alignment with what Idle No More was doing. So we decided in 2013 to do things on our local level. And what is was in our face at the local level are the five refineries in the San Francisco Bay Area that cause tremendous pollution, one being an explosion at Chevron in 2012 that sent 15,000 people to the hospital. So seeing that in our own neighborhood, we had felt we had to do something to address it. So we came together as a very small group. We call it a small but mighty of about 20 core members. Um, And Penny Opal Plant, one of our founding members, at a meeting suggested that we do a walk, to all the refineries, to the five refineries, which are between nine and 12 miles between them. And to do it, commit to do it over four months and then over four years. And that way we could not only connect to the walks that uh, First Nations people were doing around the tar sands in Alberta, Canada, but it was also a way to make a local action connect to a global actions of indigenous people around the world. And certainly lately we've been connected to the things that are happening in the Amazon and all of the uh, murders of activists in the Amazon and the defoliation and the destruction of the Amazon, which is really the lungs of the world and which keeps us going with all the biodiversity down there. So we became, um, we couldn't sit back. In other words, and that's where that that name came from. The women in Canada said, "We can be idle no more. Uh, we really have to put our lives on the line." Essentially, which is a lot of people. What's going on now in Indigenous communities around the world that people are putting their lives on the line to save our precious Earth.
0: So um, you you raised that that sort of point that people are putting their lives on the line. Um, Although I've seen on the Idle No More webpage and in your mission statement uh, that you believe in a non-violent approach and I'd just like to read one of the statements that are written there. We understand that our enemies are not other human beings but the thought forms that create separation, colonization and capitalism. I'd like to ask if you can expand on the importance of this statement, not only as a statement, but as a practice, particularly when you are putting your own life on the line at times. And if you can explain how that practice also lays the foundation for another important aspect of the mission statement, which says that we know that we are all related in the sacred system of life.
1: One of the things that we said as the grandmothers, as we came together in any direct ha- action that we did, and always nonviolent, the grandmothers, and we've made these beautiful red skirts, uh, so we're easy to find in a crowd. We said that we will be the front line, and always the grandmothers are in the front so that they could see and in and, and somewhat hope people that are somewhat more hesitant to hurt or beat a grandmother uh, when we're out there because we want to protect our young ones. However, that's very different in the Bay Area. Uh, We don't have the kind of issues that they did at Standing Rock or down in Louisiana, the Bio Bridge, or even up in Canada with our First Nation relatives that are being beaten. One of our activists had, she was jerked so hard, her wrist was broken. So we do realize we're in a bubble But we still hold to that uh, tenet of nonviolent direct action to focus on what is causing harm for us. And that means systems of power, including, as you mentioned, capitalism, colonialism, gender inequity and discrimination in any form. So by focusing on the systems rather than the people, we can bring people together to focus on what we are for and not against. So some people feel that climate chaos does not pertain to them or that they are somehow protected from environmental destruction. But if we focus on how we're related and therefore similar, we encourage those to join us for all life, human and non-human. We don't place hierarchy on humans, but recognize as with a spider web, if you tug on one string, it will affect the whole. So conversely, if you begin to heal one area, then the effect will then spread. So that has really been one of the four things that we say all of the time. If somebody would come to one of our actions and they would boo somebody or try to be violent, we'd say, nope, that's not what we're about. This is about systems, not about this police officer standing in front of us or about um, army corps of engineer or anyone so if we can get people to move beyond that human to human friction and to really address the systems of power and oppression that
0: makes a more unifying
1: bond for us and has been much more effective in all the direct actions that we've done
0: yeah and i think what's um really telling about that approach and that belief um is you you mentioned also um our non-human relatives is uh, we talk a lot about trying to find ways to help humans relate to the more than human world. But I think what you're pointing to also in this approach is to help humans to relate to other humans, um, humans, even when it appears that they are standing um, on the other side of a dividing line.
1: That, you know, that's so true. And usually when we meet, and as I said, it's very different in the Bay Area, but when we um, meet the police officers that are protecting or something, we always ask them, do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Um, do you understand why we're here? So we're relating to them, not as I'm opposed to you, but do you understand why we're here? And maybe they have some respect too, remembering their grandmother or their mother so that we can reason with them and talk to them. At, at one point I was, we were barricading a street. Uh, we had blocked off the street with, with our our banner and a police officer came up and said, you know, you, you, you're gonna get hurt here, the cars are coming and I said, we're fine, we'll be okay. And he said, well, let me put a police car in front of you to protect you. I said, no, then you can't see our banner no, you can't do that. And he said, well, you could be subject to arrest. And I said, I know, we're ready for that. And then he was just, I was very calm and didn't yell, didn't scream. And we just, he just walked away and let us be there, but they were protecting us. They were making sure cars weren't getting too close. So you have to relate to people on that level. I'm here for you as well as for me. I'm here for your family. I'm here for the protection of of all forms of life, that we can all coexist on this beautiful earth.
0: Thank you for that story, Melinda. Um, I'd like to turn our attention back to the refineries, uh, which is related to a current project you're working on, a film that you're co-producing with filmmaker um, Chihira Wimbush called Every Step is a Prayer, refinery corridor healing walks Um, if you can just return back to the subject and talk a little bit more about the evolution of the healing walks uh, how chihiro uh, came to know of them and came to participate and then how that evolved into a communal film project
1: Sure. Uh, the walks were a result of the many prayers we put down over the years from the grandmother's circle. Uh, we prayed for the health of the earth. We prayed for everything. And when it, it was really so evident after that explosion at the refinery, we don't have to go up to Canada to walk around the tar sands. We have an environmental disaster in our backyard. And a lot of people had no awareness that there actually are five refineries in the Bay Area because some of them are located behind a hill or something. And unless you drive along the Bay, you would not be aware of it at all. So that became um, an organizing idea for the Grandmother Circle to form Idle No More SF Bay and then to work on the refinery uh, corridor healing walks. And as I said, our core group was about 20. And we organized that um, and got funding for it. A little bit of funding, uh, not a lot, and decided that we would do it. Four for us is a sacred number because it's the four directions of the wind. That's why we did four months over four years. And we came together and in the beginning, We would go through communities and what we call impacted communities. And most of those communities are where poor people and people of color live along those roads. And some people couldn't figure out what we were doing. We were singing, we were praying, and we were walking in prayer. And at first, some people were maybe questioning or a little hostile. By the end of the fourth year, we had people joining us or Uh, honking their horns or clapping for us and then we say join us on this walk even if you can only do a small portion of this walk and Tahiro was invited by someone who had been attending the walk so he came the second to the last year and as a documentary filmmaker he could see the power and the passion of the people and thought somebody needs to make a film So, of course, the first thing he did, he would, everything has to go through the grandmothers. So he went to two of our grandmothers to talk about it and suggest it. And then they said, well, the only grandmother who's actually made a film is Melinda. So maybe you want to meet with her and I with him. And I thought this is an amazing idea to document all of the work that we've put into this, but also too for this film to be an example of how local people can organize in their community. I know thousands of people went to Standing Rock, but we wanted to say, but there's things in your own backyard that you can do. You don't have to go to Standing Rock, or you don't have to go to Alberta, Canada to do that. We have pressing issues here. So that the story was so compelling to Chihiro that we got together and just started working on the film together. And it's been a challenge because uh, a lot of people don't want to fund documentaries. And we've been working on a very shoestring of a budget. Uh, We're half through, we have a half rough cut and we're, we're still working on it. But every time I see, our, uh, any footage of all, it just brings tears to my eyes, not just for what we've done as Idle No More SF Bay, but what we hope is a beacon of hope for people out there that say, I don't know what to do. How can I, as one person, make a dent in this sort of catastrophe of environmental degradation.
0: Thank you, Melinda. And, and we'll be putting um, a link to your GoFundMe page for those that would like to uh, contribute to the completion of the film. Uh, w- what you said here uh, really brings me um, to back to the beginning of our conversation where we spoke about the role of the grandmothers the role of elders Um, and now I'd like to just sort of turn to your opinion on the role of the filmmaker and um, Mm. I'd like you to just share your thoughts you you've made a film before this one and perhaps you can talk a little bit about that but how do you see your role and the role of people like Chihiro as documentary filmmaker in our time particularly when when it's so difficult as you said to get funding uh for these projects mm-hmm. um but yeah not only how do you see the role as the filmmaker in working with and talking on behalf of the community but also talking on behalf of mother earth
1: it's such a delicate balance uh, because you want to have a film that really gets people's attention. Not, not to get their attention so they feel paralyzed by the overwhelming uh, tasks that people may see before them, but to sort of ignite that little flame for them. My previous film, uh, and I had never thought of making a film. I'm a historian by trade and taught for 25 years at Mills College, Um, a colleague of mine had been teaching, she was in women's studies, she had been teaching on the sterilization of native women. And she came to me and said, do you have any material? And I had a paper sack, a grocery sack, full of articles and gave it to her to read. And she came back sometime later and she handed me the articles and she said, You need to make a film. And I thought, Okay. So I happened to have this very talented Native student who was taking a video making course, and that became the subject the sterilization of Native women. Um, it's called Killing the Seventh Generation. And we got together and we had no money. So we borrowed equipment from Mills and we made this very short documentary um but i didn't even think of myself in retirement as uh, doing that but then at the the year before i retired i met Shahiro. we started this project and originally we thought it'll be a half hour version and we'll get it done by september submitted to film festivals the story was so compelling and the women in our group we had interviewed and the people that we said we couldn't do justice in a half an hour which delayed getting into the film festivals, but I feel that media is such a potent form of bringing attention to pressing matters. So we wanted this film to highlight the local disasters from the refineries, but also again, illustrate how a small core group of mighty people were able to organize and conduct the walks. And then we hope, again, this will be inspiration for people to do that in their own communities. Um, We have a responsibility, and I feel that as a grandmother and as an elder, to clean up our messes and do better for the next generation. And for me, it's not a choice, but imperative to do
0: that. And um, Melinda, maybe you can just share a bit about your thoughts of your first film. What impact do you think it had And what light did it bring to the subject?
1: That's a very good question because I, depending on the audience where we were showing the film, and I've shown this film at many uh, universities and classes, and then we went to local Native groups to show the film to Native women. When we've had, and we couldn't find someone, who had been forcibly sterilized because we didn't want, we didn't have the resources available. We didn't have counseling. When we showed the film to a largely Native audience, the women started to come forward with their stories, and they talked about it. When we showed them to a largely non-Native audience, people didn't believe it. And they said, oh, this must have happened in the 1800s. I said, no, it was happening up until the 1970s. And some women were, girls actually, not even women, were 11 or 12. And they went in for things that they thought were tonsillectomies. And at that time, they were sterilized and didn't know about this until later when they could not bear children. So it's a huge Um, indictment against the Indian Health Service and the U.S. government, who's never issued an apology to the women who were sterilized. So I think it's had this sort of ripple effect. We we showed the film on uh, Native TV down in San Jose. Um, And at one point, I wanted to make a much longer film and then interview women who had been sterilized because at that time we did have the resources we did have the counseling services but I sort of got distracted in doing uh, finishing up my uh, work at Mills College and then diving literally it felt like the day after I retired diving into this film so I, I do think that small film that we we made it's on YouTube now and people can go look at it and it was a very, I felt, rudimentary film, but something to really open people's eyes to, to further investigate or to look at that and to look at some of the ways in which indigenous women have been brutalized by official sources.
0: And as you sort of um, highlighted, you're also highlighting the importance in community screenings of of films like this where... The film not only serves as uh, information um, to enlighten people about a topic, but the film itself uh, can serve as a a type of um, healing tool for people who have experienced trauma when they see someone else on screen or other stories on screen that represent their own.
1: Absolutely. And I think it gives women some courage to talk about it um, and to reach out and maybe get some of the help that they need and not feel that they're alone in this, that they can actually um, speak about it. Because some women, uh, after they were found out they were sterilized, sometimes were victims of domestic violence. Uh, So there are other ancillaries problems that arose from the women being sterilized, not just in the fact that they could not bear children, but substance abuse, domestic violence, a lot of these other uh, problems that occur because of that issue of being sterilized as either a, a girl or a young woman.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that, Melinda. And uh, you're not only working on this new film project but I believe you're also uh, working on a book in retirement
1: yes (laughs) yes I am it's over many years um, I went back to Oklahoma I was raised in California um, and my mother and father from Oklahoma and I didn't start this book project until my father passed away which was Uh, A regret of mine that I wasn't able to ask him all these questions, but I was able to go back and interview uh, members of the tribe and my family members and collect stories told from inside the tribe when a lot of people, Seminole people, tend to be very protective of our history and our stories. And of course, being a tribal member and also a relative, they told me the stories. So I feel it's really my obligation to these beautiful stories uh, to write this book and then donate the tapes of these people's voices, uh, which are another living history of our elders. And I owe a lot to those elders.
0: Well, Melinda, um, I want to thank you um, in honoring your elders by being such a shining example, I think, of, of what an elder should be in this day and age. Uh, and it seems that that doesn't necessarily mean slowing down. It, it actually means. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it means that you move into your role as a storyteller, uh, what I'm hearing from what you're mm-hmm. saying. And and that takes shape in different forms and ways in this uh, day and age.
1: Thank you. And can I say one last thing? My daughter called me the other day and said mom can you tell me where this relative or that relative was and said i'm really confused and i said okay she said mom do you have a family tree and i said of course i have a family tree it goes back to florida for before the trail of tears and she said oh and i realized you know i've told my children stories going along the way but i don't think they have the whole story so this this book is, you know, obviously dedicated to all the people who shared stories, but it's also dedicated to my children and grandchildren so that they when they become elders, they can pass along these stories too.